0: Good morning, church family. Morning. Thanks for being here. Good to see all of you. I hope you'll stay to the end. I want to welcome everyone who's joining us online. Thanks for being a part of our service this weekend. And if you are a first-time guest, let me just say what a great joy it is to welcome you into our service. We always love having guests with us. If you've got a Bible with you, let me hear your pages turning to the Gospel of Luke and the 15th chapter, the Gospel of Luke and the 15th chapter. As you just heard, this weekend, we begin a new message series called Everyday Evangelism. And my hope is that it will challenge and equip all of us to be willing and actively involved in reaching out to people who are not living in a right relationship with God. That word evangelism simply means sharing the gospel or sharing the good news that Jesus came to the world to give the opportunity to experience the forgiveness of our sin, which leads to a right relationship with God. And if there's one key theme that I hope that you will hear over and over again throughout the series is that evangelism, and here at Mount Pleasant, we oftentimes use the word spiritual influence to... mean evangelism, but the one thing that I hope you hear over and over again is that evangelism or spiritual influence is something that needs to happen, at least on some level, every day in all of our lives through personal relationships, through the personal relationships that we have with people in the world today who are not living in a right relationship with God. I don't imagine anybody would remember this, but a long, long time ago, maybe 20 years ago, I shared a message series called sharing life and the theme verse for that message series called sharing life was first Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8 where Paul writes these words in fact they're so important I want us to read them together let me hear your voices we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God but our lives as well but our lives as well When Paul writes those words to the church in Thessalonica, he's reminding them that they received the gospel in an incarnational way. Or in other words, they received the gospel in a personal way. It wasn't just words. It wasn't just a tract that somebody handed them. They received it through real-life flesh-and-blood relationships with believers. We loved you so much That we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And this is how evangelism or personal or spiritual, rather, spiritual influence happens best in the world today. And it needs to be happening in all of our lives because it's something that everyone can do, that anyone can do. And I know some of you will hear that and you say, Well, not me, you're wrong, Pastor, I don't agree with that. I know that because I've had people tell me that over and over again for many, many years, but this is something that anyone can do, you don't have to take a class, you don't have to pass a test, you don't have to do an internship or a practicum, you don't have have to have a Bible college or a seminary degree, you just have to be willing to be involved in sharing spiritual influence with people that you already know, at least on some level. You have to care enough about lost people. That's what it comes down to. You have to care enough about lost people to take the time to share your life with them. And your faith, your discipleship, your being a follower of Jesus is the most important thing in your life. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And so the important question for all of us is do we really care about lost people? Are they even on our radar? There's no doubt, no question at all that God cares about lost people, but what about you and me? Do we share God's heart when it comes to lost people? Do we even know or understand God's heart when it comes to lost people? I'm sure because this movie is over 20 years old, I'm sure probably all of you here have seen the movie Cast Away with Tom Hanks. It was released in December of 2000, And you know the story in the movie, Hanks plays a FedEx executive named Chuck Nolan who was in a plane crash in the South Pacific. He's the only one who survives the crash and he finds himself marooned on an uninhabited small island. Uh, and he spends the next four years of his life there, four years all alone on this uninhabited small island. Over the course of the first few days on the island, different packages that had been in the plane, the FedEx plane that crashed, began to wash up on the shore of the island, and, and he would open each one and see what was inside and uh, see if it could provide him any help or assistance in his survival on that island. And you know that one of the packages contained a Wilson brand volleyball, of all things. Well, as the movie progresses, you see that in order to keep his sanity hanks his character chuck nolan turns that volleyball into an imaginary friend named wilson and you remember how it happened he was trying to make a fire one day and he cut his hand deeply and he was so frustrated and so angry that he picked up the volleyball was still in the box but he picked up the volleyball with one of his the hand that had been cut that was covered with blood and he threw it and when he retrieved it it looked like the face of a person at least to a crazy man who was stranded on an uninhabited island And so he began this friendship, and over the course of time, this relationship, he talked to Wilson, and he did some things to make it look even more like a person over the course of time. Well, fast forward, and through just uh, unexpected circumstances, he finally has the materials necessary to build a raft to have the opportunity to try to get off the island. And so he does that, and he takes Wilson along with him. But if you remember the movie, there's a dramatic moment while he's floating in the ocean in the middle of nowhere where he loses the volleyball where he loses Wilson. Let's just remind ourselves of what that looked like in the movie for a couple of minutes. Wilson! Uh, Wilson! someone who is just watching that one scene would have a very difficult time understanding why that volleyball meant so much to that man, why he was so upset at losing that volleyball, why it affected him so deeply. Because in order to understand why that was so important to him, you have to understand what he had experienced over the past four years of his life. You'd have to understand the context or the setting for all of it. You could say it like this. You'd have to understand his heart. Well, you could say the same thing about God. In order to understand how God feels about lost people, remember, when when I say lost people, I'm talking about people who are not living in a right relationship with God, who are separated from God because of their sin with no hope of doing anything about that sin on their own. In, In order to understand how God feels about lost people, you have to understand God's heart. And that can be really difficult for a lot of Christians who think, why does God care so much about people that don't care about him? Why is God so head over hills in love with people who, in many cases, don't even give him the time of day? They never even think about God. Why is his heart so open to people whose hearts are so closed to him? And that's not a unique question to the day and age that you and I live in. That's something that religious people have grappled with for many, many years. In fact, that was a very question that a lot of religious people had in Jesus' day, even though they never came out in the pages of the Scripture and articulated it that way. Clearly, that's the way they felt. And we see that in the way they criticized Jesus for his relationship with lost people. Remember, one of the reasons why Jesus came into the world was to reveal to us the reality of who God is. We know that the primary purpose or reason Jesus came in the world was to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and satisfy God's need for justice with regard to your sin and mine. That's why he came in the world. But the Bible also says he came to seek and to save the lost. And so he was focused on people who were genuinely lost and that was such a strange thing to the religious leaders of the day because They couldn't understand why why God would care about people that they didn't care about. But Jesus came into the world to show us the heart of God. There's so many places in the New Testament that show us that so clearly. I've just chosen one because it's, pretty much my favorite. It's in the opening words of the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter one and verse three says about Jesus. Notice that the word sun is capitalized. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The sun is the radiance. The Greek word apagosma, which means a shining light. So in other words, when it says the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the sun, Jesus, shines a light on God's glory, shines a light on the reality of who God is and the exact representation of his being. Those two words, exact representation from the Greek word karakter, which means that Jesus is the perfect personal imprint of God in time and space because it's a word that describes what happens when you take a rubber stamp and you press it into hot wax and it makes an imprint or it leaves an imprint. That's the reality of what the Hebrew writer is talking about. Jesus came to the world to show us what God is like, to show us the heart of God, and he showed us the heart of God toward lost people over and over and over again, and that's what brings us to Luke chapter 15. Because in Luke chapter 15, if there's any doubt in your mind at all about the kind of love and concern God has for lost people, it's all taken away in three very simple stories. But before we look at those stories, there are a couple things I want to tell you. First, and just to be completely honest, until we come, you and me, not somebody else, you and me, until we come to a place where we share the heart of God for lost people, we'll never be involved in any kind of meaningful outreach or evangelism or spiritual influence in our lives. And second, Luke 15 is the perfect setting for stories that remind us of how God feels about lost people And we see that in the first two verses because we always make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service. I'm gonna invite you, if you've got your Bible open to Luke 15, to go ahead and stand with me for these two verses. But they're very short. You might just wanna look up on the screen. This is how Luke chapter 15 begins. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, him being Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes and eats with sinners. All right, you can be seated. We always ask that God blesses the reading and the hearing of his word. Here's what we need to understand. You got two categories of people here with Jesus. You've got tax collectors and sinners, and you've got religious people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The tax collectors uh, were Jewish citizens who were in in partnership with the Roman government, and they were collecting taxes from their Jewish um, brothers and sisters, oftentimes more than they were allowed to take, and they did it under the protection of the Roman government, and so they were hated because they were viewed as traitors to God's people. And then you've got what? We're, we're told are sinners, just in, in, uh, in quotations there, and we could describe those people in a lot of ways, but basically they were irreligious people who didn't have any time for God or any time for organized religion. They were people who had a Jewish heritage, but had turned their back on that Jewish heritage and everything related to the way God wanted them to live. And so you've got them, but then you've got these Pharisees and these teachers of the law who were the religious leaders. They were the scholars of the day, and they viewed their job as guarding the boundaries of who was right and who Was wrong when it comes to people and their relationship with God. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus had so much tension with them throughout his earthly ministry, because they spent a lot of their time looking at people and deciding when it came to God, who was in and who was out and why. And so Luke 15 begins with all of these people in this same place, and these religious leaders all stirred up because Jesus is spending time with tax collectors and sinners, with irreligious lost people, even eating them, which was shocking because in in that day, eating with someone communicated the acceptance of someone, and Jesus sees a perfect opportunity in this moment to teach, or at least to try to teach, lessons about the heart of God toward lost people. He does it in three stories. I'm going to try to do this quickly, but I'm not going to pay much attention to the clock. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) The first story, Luke chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. Look at it with me. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So you have a man who has a flock of 100 sheep, and a man with a flock of 100 sheep in Jesus' day would have been a very wealthy man. He's doing inventory, and one of the sheep is missing. But he doesn't say, okay, a 1% loss isn't that bad, and then just clock out and go home. Because he's not going to accept anything except a complete 100% accounting for all of the sheep And so what he does, as we just saw, is he leaves 99, the 99 sheep that are there, safe in the sheep pen, and he goes out searching for the lost sheep because he knows that sheep have a tendency to wander, just like God knows that people like you and me have a tendency to wander. And when he finds that sheep, in the most literal sense, he assumes the burden. The the man who has lost the sheep assumes the personal burden of bringing that sheep home by joyfully putting it on his shoulders and carrying it home. And when he gets home, he gets the entire village together to celebrate the fact that this one sheep has been found. And Jesus says, that's the way it is in heaven when one sinner repents, or when, in other words, when one sinner turns turns around, turns their life around, a life that is moving away from God and turns their life around and moves toward God. So let's just make sure we understand the elements of the story, I'm sure you do. The shepherd represents Jesus who, remember, as God's son, as God in human flesh, perfectly reflects and represents the heart of God. The shepherd in the story is not your pastor. It's not me. It's not one of the elders of your church. It's not some other church leader. It's not your small group leader. It's not your parents. It's not some spiritual person that you know. The shepherd is Jesus, and he is showing us what God is like. The lost sheep represents lost people. Whatever words you want to use to describe them, irreligious people, unchurched people, pagans, unsaved people, whatever you want to use to describe them, that's who that lost sheep represents. The shepherds' friends and neighbors represent all of us as believers who celebrate when the sheep is returned. And here's the main lesson from the story that we need to take to heart. Jesus is simply inviting us to see lost people as sheep who have lost their way. That's it. And so the question for all of us, and this first story is very simple, is how do we see lost people? How do you view lost people? Unchurched people, pagan people, again, whatever word you want to use to describe them. As you come in contact with people in the world today, in the network of your life, who are not living in a right relationship with God. In some cases, people who are clearly not living in a right relationship with God. How do you view them? With indifference, with fear, enemies of your values, bad influences on your children, people to be avoided. How do you view lost people? The story tells us that God sees them as sheep who have lost their way. People who belong to him by virtue of the fact that he created them to live in fellowship with him, but now they have wandered away. And the story tells us that God is not willing to give up on any of them, not one single one of them, no matter what. No matter where they have wandered to, no matter how far they've been, uh, how long they've been gone, no matter what they've done, he sees all lost people as sheep who can be found and safely brought home and the story tells us that God himself is willing to bear the weight of those sheep on his own shoulders to bring them home and isn't that exactly what Jesus did when he came in the world and he died on the cross and he took on his own shoulders literally not figuratively literally all the sin of all of us that's exactly what he did he bore the weight of our sin on the cross and so let me repeat the question How do you see lost people? We're living in crazy times, friends. I know that we all acknowledge that. We all know and understand that. We're living in crazy times, and especially when it comes to morality and values and culture and politics and sometimes just plain old human decency. And because of that, it's easy to draw lines. It's easy to build walls that separate us from people in a way that allows no crossover or no connection But that does not reflect the heart of God, it never will. And one of the things we can do to overcome that is adjust the way that we view people who are lost. Jesus sees them as sheep who have wandered away, but who can be safely returned home. So the question is, how do you, how do I, how do we see lost people? That's the question. The second story is in verses eight through 10. And it's also a pretty simple story. I'll read it to you. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who Repent, so very similar, except the main character in the story now is a woman. And it's likely these 10 coins that we're told about in the story represent her dowry. Think of it like this, they represent her life savings, everything she has, and so she, here she is from a practical standpoint with this loss that's actually more substantial than the loss in the first story, if you think about it, because the loss in, this, in the first story, one sheep out of 100 represents a 1% loss, but in the second story, one coin out of 10 represents a 10% loss. And so, it's much more significant. One out of 100 versus one out of 10. So, the woman looks frantically for the coin. She sweeps the house. She lights a a lamp. She does everything she can. And when she finds it, she's so excited, so happy that she invites all of her friends over just like the, the man did in the first story so that they can celebrate. Jesus says in verse 10, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so the symbolism is, the second story is very similar to the first. The lost coin represents lost people, just like the lost sheep represented lost people. But there's something interesting about here, and I'm not sure how I feel about this, but there are some commentators who will look at this story in the series of the three stories here in Luke 15 and say that the lost people represented by that lost coin, that one out of 10 coins that was lost are presented as more valuable in this story than the 100 sheep because again one represents a 1% loss and one represents a 10% loss. I'll let you just hang on to that for a minute and think about that. But when it's found there's great rejoicing. Here's the main lesson Jesus is inviting us to see in this second story. Jesus wants us to see lost people as something valuable enough to deserve our all-out effort to find. Our all-out effort. Highest priority. Nothing more important in the moment. So think about something with me. I'm gonna put a statement up on the screen and I want you to look at it and you can decide how you feel about it. Here it is. The passion with which we search for something demonstrates how much we value that object. Read that with me, let me hear your voices. The passion with which we search for something demonstrates how much we value that object. Have you ever lost lost something that was really, really important to you? My family moved here in 2001 and we lived in the same house for 16 years. Uh, not far from here in a neighborhood called Brookstone. We lived there for 16 years. And then in 2017, when the kids were grown and gone, Sandy and I bought... A different house. We just wanted um, a single story ranch style home that was different than the one that we had, and so we, we bought a house just in the neighborhood next door. And we bought it in uh, September, October uh, of 2017. And everything worked out perfectly with buying the house and moving in because we had scheduled a trip to the Holy Land for uh, about the same time, and so we needed a lot of work done in the house. We put all new flooring in, we painted the house, we refinished the cabinets, we bought new appliances, all that kind stuff that you do it was a house that hadn't been updated in a while. And so it's perfect because all, most of that work was gonna get done while we were gone for 10 days to the Holy Land. But as the days counted down toward our trip to the Holy Land, we discovered that in the middle of packing boxes and moving and putting some things in storage and, and doing all this, we couldn't find our passports. Now, we're not disorganized people. We have this really nice file folder that has a passport file folder, but one of us, probably me, didn't put the passports back in the folder, and in the midst of packing and boxes and moving, we could not find them anywhere. Imagine how panicky we felt. I had all these people who had spent money to go with me on a trip to Israel. Some of you in this audience probably were on that trip with me, which was a great trip, but we couldn't find them anywhere. And I mean, I was desperate. I mean, I was. I, I, there wasn't, a, here's the thing. Those, in, the, in that context, those, those passports were so valuable and important that I didn't spend a day of my life not feeling some sense of panic about where they were, no matter what else I had to do in the moment. And I even got online, and I decided, well, I, I'm going to have to bite the bull. I'm going to figure out how, what I can do to get as to get new passports as quickly as possible. I got online, and, and you know, I, the hand of God was in all this because I was one click away from setting in motion new passports, which would have disqualified my current passport. But for whatever reason, I didn't click on that link. I just, I just said, they've got, to, they've got to be here somewhere. And there, several years ago, I had given Sandy this... this um, this special decorative kind of a memory box that was about the size of a, of a large book, you know, the lid open like that. And inside of it was, you know, love letters, you know, <laughs> sappy, mushy stuff and tokens. And that's where they were. Somehow, that's where they got put, out of place. But that's where they were found. And she sent me a text with a picture of them when she found them. And I'm not lying, there were some tears that were shed in the moment <laughs> of rejoicing over lost passports that were found. You ever lost something that was really, really important to you? How'd you feel when you found it? The passion with which we search for something demonstrates how much we value that object. Let me ask you a question. Just, what do you think our church would be like If all of us together dedicated every day of our lives, at least on some level, to searching for lost people, because we understand how valuable they are to God. The third story is the longest story and the most familiar story of the chapter. It begins in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a different distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to be a citizen of that country, or excuse me, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and, filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his finger. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, "'Look, all these years I've been slaving for you "'and never disobeyed your orders. "'You never gave me even a young goat "'so I could celebrate with my friends, "'but when this son of yours, "'who has squandered your property with prostitutes, "'come home, you killed a fattened calf for him.'" "'My son,' the father said, "'you are always with me, and everything I have is yours, "'but we had to celebrate and be glad "'because this brother of yours was dead "'and is alive again. "'He was lost.'" And is found. Two sons. In the ancient world, and notice the progression of the parables, Jesus starts with a hundred sheep, then he moves to ten coins, and he finishes with two sons. In the ancient world, what this son did was equivalent to him saying to his father, I wish I just wish you were dead. A Middle Eastern Bible scholar named Kenneth Bailey has asked tribes across the world what would happen if a son did this in their own village and he reports his findings in a book he wrote called Poets and Peasants and in every case the villager said if that happened in our village the son would have been beaten and banished. But that's not what the father does. He gives him the money He grants his request and we see the results. He, the son just blows everything until one day he wakes up broken alone, forced to take a job herding pigs, and he's so hungry, or maybe he's still so hungover, who knows, that even the food the pigs are eating looks good to him, but then the light goes off. And we saw what he said, I, I, I just need to go home. And he said, I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, make me like one of your hired men. He rehearses those words. All the way home, but he's not prepared for what he finds because when the father sees him in the distance, we read, he runs and he welcomes him in the most celebratory way. He runs to him and welcomes him in the most celebratory way. We saw that in verses 20 through 24. And then the story takes a really unusual turn. As the older brother comes home from work, he says, what's going on? And He's furious when he finds out what's happening and he refuses, listen, he flat out refuses to be a part of any celebration welcoming his brother home. And so the father has to leave the party and go out in verses 28 through 32, try to talk to his older son and get him to understand why he's doing what he's doing. And that's how the story ends with the younger son inside in a party where he's being celebrated and welcomed home while the other son, the older son is outside and angry. Well, here's the main lesson from this story. Clearly, I know you see this. Clearly, the father represents God in the story and how God wants to work through his son, Jesus. But here's something we don't immediately realize when we read this story. In the context of the ancient world, let's just go back to the setting. I know this is a parable that Jesus told, but he told it in the context or the setting of the time in which he lived. In the context of this story, in the ancient world, what that father figure did to run, to welcome this rebellious son home was just as scandalous as what the younger son had done in demanding his inheritance and then going off and spending it the way that he did. Just as scandalous. And that makes sense since it's the heart of God for lost people seen in Jesus's actions that makes Jesus so scandalous to the religious leaders to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. In that day, for the father to run to meet his disgraced son would have been unthinkable. When the Pharisees and the teachers of the law heard Jesus share that part of the story, they would have been dumbfounded. It would have been shocking to them to even think about that. The younger son clearly represents people who are lost. All those tax collectors and sinners that Jesus was spending time with in Luke 15. All those ones that he was sharing his life with. But who does that older son represent? Well, the the obvious answer, and it's it's not a wrong answer. The obvious answer is that older son represents the... uh, Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders that were there that day that were so crossways with Jesus about his his love and pursuit of lost people. But here's a question. Do you think in some ways, sometimes the older brother represents you and me also? Because we're a lot more like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law than we sometimes want to admit. Is it ever possible that we could have thoughts like, why can't God just be satisfied with us? I mean, for crying out loud, we got up on Sunday morning. We came together to worship. There were so many other things that we could be doing, but we're here. Why can't God just be satisfied with us? Why does he have to be so focused on lost people? We've been faithful. We've done everything he's asked us to do. But Jesus is inviting us to see lost people as family members who have run away from home I don't know about you, but I grew up around my grandparents, both sets of my grandparents. I have lots of memories, my, my mother's parents and my father's parents. My mother's parents more because for a time, my father's parents lived in Springfield, Missouri, while we lived in Tulsa. They lived in Tulsa for a long time after I was born, but then they moved back to where they were from. But I grew up around my mother's parents a lot, spent a lot of time around them. And as far as I knew, growing up, there was my grandmother. Her name was Ruth. And she had one sister named Dorothy. That was my Aunt Dorothy. And she had one brother named Bob. That was my Uncle Bob. Actually, I was named after my Uncle Bob. He was my mother's favorite. And his name was Robert. They just called him Bob. My name is Christopher Roberts. So they, she named him, me after my Uncle Bob. And we would go, and they would all be together. And it was just natural, and holidays, and celebrations. They were there. one day, I can remember going with my mother, and my brothers and sisters to my grandmother's house and my grandfather's house, her parents, and all of a sudden, there was somebody new. It was my Uncle Jack. And I said, who in the world is Uncle Jack? I mean, I was just a boy, maybe 10 or 11 years old. Who's Uncle Jack? And I found out that it wasn't just my grandmother Ruth and my Aunt Dorothy and my Uncle Bob. They also had a brother named Jack, and he was an alcoholic, and he was... Someone even even as a little boy you could look at him and think, man, life has beat this guy up. He looked awful. Everything about him, he was just pitiful. And I learned that he had he had just wandered away from their family several years earlier, and they were heartsick about it. And then one day he returned. And there he was. And when we walked in the house and my mother saw him, she knew he had come home. When my mother saw him, she wept like a baby. And he was there for two or three months. I can't remember. It wasn't a very long period of time. And then he was gone again. And then sometime later, he showed up again. And then he was gone again. And he never came back. And about a year and a half ago, Sandy and I were in Oklahoma City so I could visit my uncle. My mother had one brother name was mike and he was a pastor and he was a pastor for about 45 50 years a long time and he had just recently retired and he moved to oklahoma city where his kids were and we went to visit them and i asked him when he was there i said mike whatever happened to uncle jack and he said one day he left and he never came back nobody knows obviously he died somewhere maybe all alone who knows I want you to think about your family for a minute. And I wanna ask you a question. Who in your family would you be okay with them running away and never coming home? That's how God feels about lost people. God's heart breaks for lost people. And you see that in the actions of the Father in this third and final story. And I've studied this parable before in detail and you know what? I I will just reiterate what the father did in Jesus' story who represents God was just unthinkable. Here's what would have happened if that was a real life story. What would have happened is that when the son came home, the father would not have seen him. He just would not have been available to him because of how much the son had dishonored the family, how much his actions had tarnished the relationship of, or the, the relationship with the family, but also the father's reputation in the community, how much shame he brought in his family. The father would not have immediately seen him. And so he would make the son sit outside the gate of this home or somewhere in the village, if they lived in a village, for days in public view, and that would happen. He would do that so that the son could experience the scorn of all of the people for the way he had dishonored his father and their family. And so he would sit out in the public for days and days where they would scorn him, slander him, abuse him, and even spit on him so that he could know the severity of the consequences for his actions. And when the father did choose to see him after however much time it would be, It would be a cool reception and the son would have to bow low and kiss his father's feet and the father would tell him the work that he had to do for a length of time which would represent reparations to the family for what he had done with his actions. That's not what you see in this story, is it? You see a father From a cultural standpoint, in the most scandalous, shocking way, running to throw his arms around and kiss the face of his son, who was dead, but is now alive, who was lost, but is now found. That's how God feels about lost people. I remember back in the 1990s when I was a pastor in Oklahoma, we used to sing a song in church that was really simple, and you probably sang it here. And some people who always want to argue theology kind of want to argue the lyrics of the song a little bit, but the lyrics are just simply, God loves people more than anything. You ever heard that song? God loves people more than anything. God loves people more than anything. And more than anything, He wants them to know. He'd rather die than let them go. Because God loves people more than anything. I used to sing that song to my kids when they were babies. And they were toddlers, but I would put their names in there for people. The question is how do we see lost people? Jesus makes it so clear in three simple stories in Luke 15 how God sees lost people. The question is how do we?